Hey guys, and welcome to What Was Her Name? The show where I will uncover the stories of domestic abuse survivors. I'm your host, Maya Hooper. Hey guys, and welcome to What Was Her Name? I'm really eager to have this conversation. It's actually going to be uh, the mother of a daughter who lost her life to domestic violence. So my name's Tabitha. I'm from Australia. I'm a dental hygienist and a mum. And I found myself in a new role in 2022 as a domestic violence advocate. Um, I run an Instagram page called They Are Our Daughters. And it's trying to raise awareness about domestic violence within Australia and globally. Um, Within Australia, a woman is murdered every week from domestic violence. Um, I know in America it's every three days when I've looked at the statistics. Mm. And they're really unacceptable numbers. Um, Along with being murdered, one in three women in Australia, and I think it's fairly similar numbers in America, unfortunately, are victims of domestic violence. And... I think, unfortunately, most women can raise their hand that whilst those other two may not have been hit, there's probably been emotional violence or maybe even sexual violence in their life. And unfortunately, there aren't many women that can say, I've never had something happen to me. And it's pretty upsetting, really, to think that the majority of women around the globe have experienced some sort of gender-based violence towards them whether it be emotional physical or sexual and we really need to have change straight away we're we're in an epidemic of violence against women globally and we need massive law reform and change globally to protect us Mm -hmm. yeah yeah I couldn't agree more um and I think that you know I've, I've talked to even um people who you know, may have been in abusive relationships for, you know, 30 years and are now out. And they're like, man, I wish that there was just even a podcast um, like this, like yours, because do you have a podcast as well? We're starting up. Yeah. We're in the process of getting it together, but yeah, it's um, unfortunately it's a very daunting time. And um, one of the huge problems for victims of domestic violence is, as you probably unfortunately know, is we treat them like refugees. Mm. We make the women run. We make the women hide. We make the women choose poverty while the man walks around with most of his freedom. Mm-hmm. And that really has to change because one of the big barriers to women leaving domestic violence is the financial insecurity that they'll experience. Right. So, um, or in my daughter's case, it wasn't financial insecurity. She did leave her partner. She did grant an ADO. He did go to jail for assaulting her. Um, he was sentenced to nine months for a violent assault. He was let out five months early for good behaviour, which I find ridiculous because if you went to jail for a violent assault, how do you get out early for good behaviour? On the day of his release, he committed another violent crime against one of his family members. He was taken back to court and he should have been sent back to jail because he broke his um, probation, but he didn't. He got let out into the community again and within two weeks of leaving jail he murdered my daughter in her apartment when he broke in and killed her because he was so enraged that she wouldn't go back to him and that is the scary thing for a lot of women it's 
it's a dangerous time when they decide to leave. Um, and we need to do more to protect women before it happens. We need prevention. Mm-hmm. We need to have services for when it's happening and we need to do better when they've reported it. Yeah. Um, we're failing on every level, honestly, in Australia. I'm not sure what you feel like it is in America, but in Australia we're definitely failing on every level. Yeah, I definitely feel like uh, I, I feel the same here in, in the U.S. I think um, it's just so prominent and uh, a lot of, you know, women, girls, even men in my, in my inbox, um, you, like you said, the biggest concern is, you know, financially, but also I see a lot who have walked away and who are in debt, um, because they're trying to, like, you have to fight for your freedom to yeah from this person. And you also have to like a lot of, even the, the system here, like, um, you know, lawyers, judges will say, um, where's your proof? Um, what proof do you have? It needs to be good enough. But what I'm realizing in my own journey is that, you know, I've been out for two years and, um, proof actually is not good enough. Um, and that's something that I think we haven't talked about much. Um, I kind of talked about it a little bit on my last episode that I aired, but um, a lot of times, like a lot of survivors think like, okay, if I just have um, enough proof, enough bruises, enough recordings, enough, whatever it is that this is going to be the thing that's going to keep this, you know, abuser in jail, or it's going to get them a stamp on their record. But like, I have had the most solid of proof and it still does not stick. And so I don't really know what it is going to take, but I do think like, just as I see advocates, like, um, I'm sure you're familiar, familiar with Caitlin Jorgensen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just like see the work that she's doing. And I know that there's a lot of women who are survivors who have like stepped up or like, you know, you are the mother of, of someone who lost her daughter and you're stepping up and using your voice. And I think at this point, it's just a lot of our voices, um, that are going yeah. to like you know pushing for change it's it's worrying what upsets me is there's women we're yelling we're being loud we're trying to be heard we're advocating you know we're doing podcasts or we're um we're on social media we're at marches we're at rallies and we're fighting for the right to live which is very upsetting that that's what we have to fight for. We're literally fighting for the right to exist. Why are men not enraged and out there fighting with us? I yeah. find that really upsetting. You know, we had a, a march for my daughter um, on her birthday this year, a um, memorial march for her, but also to raise awareness for other victims. And, and um, there were hardly any men there. It was all a sea of women. There were hundreds of us marching. Why is it not, why are there not equal men there going, these are our daughters, these are our wives, these are our mothers, these are our friends, and this is unacceptable? Yeah. You know, if you're not enraged by the fact that we are fighting for the right to live, why? Mm-hmm. You, like, you, like, why? And, you know, I've obviously, um, I'm obviously a, a big advocate for equality for women. Because I really do think that domestic violence is a little bit like a pyramid. So if you think about the base of the pyramid is sexist jokes, 
it's those jokes they make about us, the feminazi jokes, the other jokes about our, um, about women. It's um, conformed gender roles. It's the gender pay gap. It's all the things that we're struggling for in equality building up, and it builds up to that violence. And and people accept that violence against us because we don't have equality and they don't look at us as equal. So, you know, men are very privileged in the fact that they can just go, oh, that that's not nice, but I can ignore it. Unfortunately, women can't ignore it. We This is our life. And I don't think you could name a woman in the world that when it's dark and you're by yourself somewhere that you don't feel a little bit anxious. And you're like, oh, is it okay? Like, you know, will I be okay walking there? Will I be okay doing this? How many women have to go, oh, maybe I won't catch the bus. I'll get an Uber or I'll do this because I don't know if it's safe for me to walk that block at night. Mm. Um, how many women have to go on a date and then have to tell their friend, I'm going on a blind date or I've met this person on online dating. This is the bar that I'll be in. This is where I'll be because we're worried about our safety. Mm. I don't think many men do that. I don't think many men have to think about that. It would be very, very low. But that's how we live our life. And we've normalised this fear that we have because it's the life that we lead, but it's not normal. We shouldn't be normalising this fear. It should be safe for us to do whatever men want to do because they don't fear like we do. Yeah, I think you said something like that just sticks with me. In the beginning, you said like um, of this, you said like, but why? Um, And I think that that, is a very like obvious question in a sense, but it's also like very profound at the same time because you're explaining, you know, how we have to fight to live. And it's like, but why? Like where are yeah. where are the men? Why are they not also enraged about this too? Um and because they're pushing us down and they like not having to, you know, like globally we're having massive issues. You know, last week Afghanistan banned women from going to university. Iran, you know, they're murdering women for not wearing their hijab. Um, we, you know, I've watched from at the outside in looking at women's rights being taken away from America with lack of um, care, in even medical care being taken away from them. It's, it is horrific what's happening to, to women globally. And men should be more enraged that their wives and their mothers and their sisters and their daughters, we're going backwards. We are not moving forwards. We are going backwards in our rights in alarming rates around the world. And without equality, we will not get rid of domestic violence. And it's it's very upsetting. And what's more upsetting is um, my daughter was murdered in March of 2022. She was the 14th woman on the 14th week to be murdered from domestic violence we're we're in the 40s of that now it didn't slow down you know it hasn't gotten better it just keeps rolling on and you know um my daughter created a media storm in Australia she was on her face was on every newspaper I couldn't turn the television on for two weeks because she was on the news every time because she was only uh, 21. She would have been 22 in July. Um, she had a small baby who unfortunately was in the house when she was murdered. She died protecting. Um, he was found covered in blood at the scene. She So it was sensational because of that. She was very attractive. She was blonde and blue-eyed. 
and the world seemed to care all of a sudden because, oh, no, a young, attractive girl has been murdered. But the same week my daughter was murdered, a young Asian mother was murdered with her baby in the exact same circumstances, and she barely rated. I've never seen an image of her. It's been very hard to find her name, and she got like a small paragraph. Wow. A couple of weeks later, Indigenous women, First Nations women were murdered in their house and the baby was murdered and the world did not care mm. because the media cares about blonde, attractive women and if you're not conforming to gender stereotypes of attractiveness, the media won't even report on you. Your life isn't even worth to talk about. And people seem to be enraged by my daughter's murder for a week or two because she was pretty and they all just move on. Yeah. But the the butterfly effect of a murder is is unbelievable. You know, obviously her immediate family, myself, you know, um, her father, sibling, it is life-changing, catastrophic. And for her son, he'll never have a Christmas with her. He'll never have a birthday that he remembers. He'll never really, he'll only know the trauma around her really. And, you know, his life is now, we don't know how it will go. You know, how will the trauma affect him long term? That's something that worries me a lot. It's changed the projection of our lives. But not just us, our extended family, you know, it's been horrific for them. For her friends, it's been horrific for them. And then for people that didn't even know my daughter personally but know, but know me, do you know what I mean, they are reeling from how it's affected me and how that makes them feel. It goes on and on and on. And even strangers knowing maybe this could have been me, I got out of a relationship, or unfortunately other people who are, this could be me, I'm even more scared. This affects thousands of people. And each time one of these domestic murders happens, there are thousands and thousands of people affected and it has a negative effect and we're just doing nothing. We just count them. And this is literally what we do. We just count the dead every week. Another one dead, another one dead, and the number keeps going up. I count the dead uh, women on my Instagram page. Every time there's one, I document it and we number it. We have to stop just counting. It does nothing. Right. so, um, what was your daughter's name? Her name um, was Mackenzie Anderson. She was 21. Um, she was a couple of weeks away from completing her yoga teacher training. And um, she was very vibrant and happy and life of the party and the fact that, you know, she was always giggling and, and the loudest one in the room kind of, um, you know, hiding a lot of pain and a lot of stuff that was going on. But trying to really um, push through. And I think something to take away from her is how she got to where she got. There were red flags in the beginning of her relationship that I um, very loudly kept saying, he he worries me, he scares me. Um, sometimes red flags aren't violence. It was the amount that he liked her the amount he was throwing gifts and things at her. He was love bombing her. And from the outside looking in, I could see that. But when you're in the storm of it, it's very difficult to see. Right. And I think 
what we have to understand is a lot of domestic violence perpetrators, they hunt their victims. Yes. Mm-hmm. They look for them. They hunt for them. Then they, they engage in the hunt, so they woo them. And it's a very calculated experience. It's not just they lost their temper one day or something went wrong. For a lot of these, these are perpetrators who hunt for someone and then and then they want to control and take over that whole life. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then the, the victim is so swallowed up and so in in the eye of the storm that it's hard to get out. And they got there. You know, you know, I think a lot of people say about domestic violence victims, why didn't she leave? You know, have what well, you know, why this, why that? Why do we ask anything about the victim? Mm-hmm. That's really unfair. We should always ask, why did he do that? Why is he doing that? This is, you know, we've we almost victim blame victims mm-hmm. when we're asking these questions. We should be saying, why is he doing that? And then we should be teaching in schools at a really young age, what a healthy relationship is because not everybody's getting that example at home. Right. And what are the, what are some of the red flags to look out for? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's um, that's huge. I think even just equipping, um, you know, people who like, for example, like communicating with other schools and coordinating with, with younger like schools like middle schools or even high schools and like being able to go and have conversations with them I think for both males and for females because I think some of it is learned like I think they see that I also think some I mean some of it you know obviously mental illness can can play into like you know certain behaviors when people have um you know like my ex was very mentally ill it's not an excuse mental illness is not an excuse for abuse um but I think like there's a lot of things that are learned and picked up or for, for young girls and boys who, you know, I mean, you don't know your worth at that age. You're, you're very young, you're absorbing. Yeah. And when you don't have people who are, you know, it's the same thing. Like it's, it's, it's not the same thing, but like what I'm going to say is like, it's much more, but like, you know, I think a lot of times I felt like when I came out of high school, I was like thrown into the world and I had no idea how to pay a bill or how to like, you do my taxes or there's just so many things yeah. by trial and error. But like, and that's how I feel like a lot of um, people are experiencing domestic abuse. It's like a trial and error kind of thing because people don't know the red flags. They don't know what to look out for, what not to enter into or what could be gaslighting or, you know, love bombing and, and, you know, and then those errors, it's, it's a life. Like it's, it's someone's, it's someone's life, you know? Yeah, I 100% agree with that. And, you know, this comes back to not helping women enough again is that their children become victims and then sometimes go on to be perpetrators because they actually don't know any different. They haven't been taught what a healthy relationship is and they haven't been taught that that is not normal. You know, if this is all you see, that that's what you normalise. And so um, intervention is a really important way to prevent this. And, um, you know, I think... As much as, you know, people will hear me say why are men so violent against us, why are we doing this, we need to be protected, we do have to ask the question, why are men being so violent? Where are we failing men along the way? And that's something I think about, you know, as a society we're obviously failing them that we're creating this, 
So we have to have some compassion for men at some point as well and say, how do we not have you experiencing violence or seeing this as the option of how to communicate? How do we intervene better and give you better life choices and better coping mechanisms and better ways to deal with this as well? Um, you know, we can say they're the perpetrators and hate them as much as you, you want to, but it's not going to fix the problem. There has to be compassion along the way and we, we think, how do we fix this? Right. Yeah. Um, so I do have, I know, um, you briefly like had explained that you saw red flags looking from the outside, looking in, um, and I'm sure that your, your story of them is a bit more spotty, obviously, um, since you are looking from the outside, but, um, would you be able to kind of just briefly tell us like, um, kind of like how did they meet and um, what you were seeing as a mom from the outside looking in? Like so um, like I wasn't, when they first met, I was living um, like an eight-hour drive away from her. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't around him all the time. But what I found very quickly in the relationship was um, he was very possessive. So, um, you know, they'd only been together a month and she'd come to stay with me for a couple of weeks, like for a week or I think it was a week or two weeks. And, um, you know, he was constantly calling her and wanting to know when she'd be back. And I was kind of like, well, you know, get a life. Like you've been together like a month. Like why does he want you back home? And then um, he just seemed you know, overly obsessed with her very early on. Um, then the very first time I met him, I instantly didn't like him. He just put her down a lot, but in a way that, you know, he came off like he was joking, but, he, you know, she bought a, she saved up and paid cash for a little car and um, I had dro- I had bought it for her because she got it from like not near her house. So I picked it up for her and I'd driven it back to where she lived. And he walked outside and, and he goes, oh, this car was shit. And I was like, it's actually a good little car, but there's nothing wrong with it. But, you know, he, he never had something, you know, a lot of the times he just said lots of little negative things, which is their way of just slowly chipping away and taking that confidence away. Right. And and that's something that I picked up on quite quickly that he was just constantly trying to take her confidence. And I don't think that's hard to see as a victim because you're having your confidence taken away. Yeah. So how do you pick that up? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that's a very, very difficult thing. Um, and so I just saw that he very, you know, very subtly was just chipping away at her, con- her confidence a lot and that very, very much worried me. Um, I I just found him very obsessive and that worried me. And, you know, and that was very early on in the relationship. My daughter was kind of like, you've met him twice, you've met me. And I was like, yeah, there's just there's something about him, there's something about this behaviour that I don't like. And we often argued about him in the beginning because straight away, I picked up at him as something worrying, mm. you know. My gut said this isn't a good thing, and, you know, and unfortunately I've been proved right. Okay. Um, I also noticed things as their relationship progressed. He would send me messages to try and make her fight with me, 
And I messaged her and said, I'm not dumb. I can see what he's doing. He's trying to create a distance between you and your family so you have no options. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, and I said, I can see exactly what he's doing. She, you know, couldn't pick that up in the beginning, but that's what a lot of perpetrators do. They make sure that they separate you from friends and family through conflict so that you don't have someone to run to. Yes. So you don't have someone to ask for help from. Mm-hmm. And that's why I say, like, some of these perpetrators, this is a calculated hunting experience where they know exactly what they're doing. So what would you say to a mom who's listening who, um, you know, maybe she has a young daughter or son or maybe it's someone who is, um, you know, whose child is currently in a domestic violence situation, like, what would you say to somebody um, who's listening maybe as advice to them if they're seeing the beginning stages of red flags within like their child's relationship? How would you say would be the best course of action to like proceed? Oh, I wish I knew because I don't think maybe I did it the best job. Um, I think what I should have done um, is a better job at maybe expressing what a healthy relationship, you know, more and more words. It's not even just about having a healthy relationship, but I should have maybe spent more time in her childhood talking to her about red flags to look out for um, so that she could identify them better. But I think, you know, I didn't I too much and I probably should have nagged more about those gut feelings that I had and just said, you know, come on. Um, um, I did ask her a couple of times if stuff was going on and, and she would deny it because, you know, that's what victims do because they're trying to hide and keep the keep the facade that everything's okay, everything's okay. Um, but, yeah, I wish I had better advice because I'm not, you know, we often think about what could we have done, what could we have changed, how could, what you know, what could have been better so that we could have prevented this because... Um, you know, that's something that unfortunately plays through our minds all the time. I think, I think though, no matter what, like, what, like, I don't, I don't think personally that there was much that you would have been able to do because I do think that this individual that took her life, um, like you said, was set out on a task and, you know, at the end of the day, I think, uh, he, I think that you have a unique like place where, you know, I know that there's moms listening and families that listen to this podcast and even people who have um, daughters who are currently in um, domestic violence situations. And I think like there's probably a lot of people who would really like to learn from you because I think that you have, you carry, um, a perspective that I can't like, I can't share that. And, um, and I don't mean like losing your daughter that in itself is something that, you know, I truly, I, I literally can't imagine. And I like, when I read, um, I was looking a little bit on, um, your page and I think I can't come across a picture, um, of your daughter. Um, and I was just thinking like, she looks like 
like a friend. Like she looks like someone yeah. to hang out with um, and just hang out. And, you know, she looks like one of my friends. And I was just like thinking about her and thinking like how, how grieved like I am not even to have known her, but just to see like the joy in her face and to think like as a mom to have, to be on the other end of that. And, you know, I have a, I have a son. Um, I just, I can't, I cannot imagine. Um, but I think you carry a perspective that um, people may want to learn from, I think. And I don't know, you know, I know that you have taken up that torch to, to advocate and to speak. And so I think that, you know, the place that you're speaking from is something, it's something different, something very unique. And I know that there's others who are going to want to know what you have to say and, you know, like can empathize with you in ways that I, you know, I can't because I am the daughter and like, I am the, uh, the one who. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, for victims that might be listening who, you know, as parents, we're only coming from a space where we're trying to protect you. Um, you know, or even, you know, people that might be listening that think, oh, my parents were carrying on about someone. When we see fear for our children, we're worried. You know, we want to protect them at all costs. So, you know, don't think we're nagging. <laughs> we're really just trying to step in and and do something. But I think, you know, you have to just we have to talk more to our daughters about this stuff. We have to um, explain the risks, unfortunately. And then the mothers of sons need to teach their sons how to be respectful um, in relationships. And that's really, really big. I think that's where, um, you know, I'm the mother of a, uh, of a son and I have a lot of conversations with him now about how important it is to be respectful of women, um, how important it is to be just respectful of people in general. Um, And we must do better as a society um, in how we treat people. If your children are going through something, trying to offer them, you know, they don't always want to talk to mum and dad about stuff like this. So looking for services that they can use, giving them information about that so that we can direct them in the right direction as much as possible and um, get them that help wherever we can because, you know, we really need it's serious domestic violence. It unfortunately ends with death on a far too regular basis. Um, With your daughter, did she, um, was she out? How long were they together and when did she, was she? They had been broken up since um the violent assault that sent him to jail and that was in the September and she was murdered in the March he went to jail and then he you know he um, murdered her two weeks from release so um you know and I think that the justice system failed my daughter unfortunately dramatically because, you know, how do you go to jail for a violent crime and then get released for good behaviour? It doesn't really make sense, does it? Right. Like you didn't get there with good behaviour. Um, and and then the other issue is, is what are we doing to rehabilitate these offenders? Great, we sent them to jail. Do we really think it makes a difference? 
it doesn't um, the course of their behavior or no, it probably makes it worse to be honest um so we have to really start thinking about all of that as well as you know how are we rehabilitating them why are we letting them go live back in the same suburb and terrorize them straight away why don't we make them live further away and, and bring in other restrictions as well i think you know we've got a I th- and I think one of the problems is too much of the times we're focused on reaction of what to do after the violence and we're very, we're not focused on how do we prevent it because once the violence has happened, and unfortunately you know this, no matter what kind of level of violence, once it's happened, the trauma is already there. Mm-hmm. We've already emotionally scarred that person for life. Yeah. So we need to prevent that. Um, and so we need to do a lot more in prevention. And we need to do a lot more to protect women. You know, one of the things that I've been advocating for recently is reforms in dating apps. Mm. Um, I've actually never used a dating app and I was asking someone about it. You don't have to, um, you know, have your identity proven. You can be anybody. You can be a convicted murderer, a convicted rapist, a convicted anything, and you're allowed to be on that dating app pretending to be someone else hunting for women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and we, we do nothing about that. We let the hunting continue. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really worrying. Why are we letting convicted murderers, rapists, domestic violence people be on dating apps? Mm-hmm. I think it ties into like what you were saying earlier about just, they're always just, it's just another number. Like, and there's not, there is nothing being done to like actually cut the, like cut the continual like pattern. Um, and and so it continues. And so, you know, where, um, her uh, boyfriend, is he in jail now? I would assume. Yes, her ex-partner um, was arrested at the scene. He's awaiting trial. So we're still waiting um, for that. Um, there was obviously a lot of time gathering evidence and, and making sure that every, you know, boxes were ticked. He All of that went, we had to wait for the coroner's report, autopsy, all of those things before he could be officially charged. Um, he is there. In Australia, they still make you say her alleged murder because he hasn't been officially found guilty yet. Um, we are expected to approach trial next year where, again, we will all be victimised because, you know, he'll be able to plead why he did it, you know, whatever his excuses are, um, and then we'll have to fight for um, a sentence. So, um, you know, in Australia, we're quite quite lenient, unfortunately, for something like this. Best case scenario we're probably looking at is that he gets 20 years. That's crazy. That's yeah. A- and the average domestic violence murder gets about 14 in Australia because, again, we're showing that women's lives don't really matter. Right. Yeah. You know, if they, if they defrauded the government, um, stole their taxes they'd get longer and her son um your grandbaby where is he now 
So um, he is with us um, the majority of the time and then he does um, some shared care with some other family members, but he's with us five nights a week. Um, and then it wasn't actually he would, um, her ex-boyfriend was not the father of her baby. They'd broken up when the baby was quite small in COVID. So um, he has him two nights a week. Okay. And then we have him the other nights. And, yeah, it's um, he's very much a traumatised two-year-old. He turned two um, this year and, you know, when we first got him, um, he headbutted everything, he punched himself in the head and he just screamed. Mm. Um, he now has stopped hitting himself, he stopped headbutting and things like that, but there's still trauma there. Like, you know, when he's really frustrated, he hits me because mm. that's what he's seen. That's the behaviour that he's learnt. And so, you know, we're now having to spend our time really trying to reprogram him that violence is not it's not something that you use. Right. And he, Which is you know, really sad for him. Yeah. And he was, um, how old was he when um, his mom had passed away? One. One, okay. Wow. Yeah. You know, and he was found at the scene that day covered in blood. Oh, wow. So he was there for the whole thing. You know, we took him at 2 o'clock in the morning in a very traumatised um, state. And that's something that worries me greatly. I think about all the time, you know, like obviously he doesn't know where she is. So at the moment he's just a two-year-old that thinks his mum didn't come home. Mm. And so, you know, he's looked for her for a lot, a long time, trying to find her around the house. If he sees photos of her, he sometimes gets upset mm. because I think he just thinks, where is she? Yeah. Um, as he gets older, we're going to have to explain these things to him. And, you know, I very much worry about how is he going to cope as a teenager with all of this information and trauma. It's a lot to take on. And that's something that annoys me as well is that when the person is sentenced for this, that doesn't take it get taken into account that he hasn't just taken this life. He's affected the course and the future of many lives. Yes. And that's, you know, I think that the children in domestic violence relationships, the trauma that they experience, even if they're not physically hurt, the emotional trauma that these children experience is never taken into account when we're sentencing, when we're talking about it. But what we're doing to these children is massive. It's huge, you know, that trauma that they're taking on. And I really feel that there should be some kind of, you know, crime that they're charged with when there's children watching and hearing and seeing this because it's not okay. Just, and it's not ever the victim's fault. You know, they're trying to protect that child most of the time. It is the perpetrator's fault in that situation only and they're the ones who have to take the blame and the punishment for it. Yeah, yeah. Um, wow. I just, I think I'm <clears throat> just like my, my little one is like four, but I left when I, he was one. And <clears throat> so I just can't, um, I think I just, this knowing that he was there in that, in that crime scene and that that happened is just, uh, incredibly like, it makes me sick to my stomach. Um, and the role that like you guys are, are 
now taking to <clears throat> to help raise him and I think it's it's a lot how are you um coping like I know that you have um started this page and <clears throat> it looks like it's taken off how are you though like I that maybe that's like a really dumb question I don't know it's hard I think in the beginning like the night that I got the phone call it was utter shock I didn't cry instantly I went into shock and shock is actually this beautiful thing in the fact that your body just goes and starts functioning so you know I had to take this baby who's traumatized and in some ways, I suppose it was a good thing because it just made me go, I just have to keep going. You know, and I, I picked up this baby and, you know, we've got to try and just soothe it on the first couple of nights and, and make sure that they're, they're okay and, and then keeping me quite busy. I don't really remember the first month. I have huge memory blanks. Mm-hmm. I was getting a statement at the police station recently and um, that one of the officer said to me, do you remember this phone call when you gave permission for DNA of your grandson? And I said, now that you've said it, I know that it happened, but I can't recall, I couldn't recall it before. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I see a trauma psychologist and, and she said, it's just the brain trying to protect me. Right. It's, you know, so it's just, it's just wiping memories because I don't want to remember them. So shock is beautiful. You know, you see people get out of a, have an accident and have had a head injury. And they try to get back in the car and drive home because they're in total shock. That's what it's like after your child is murdered. You are in total shock and you just go into automatic mode and you just cope. When the shock starts to wear off and the real grief starts to set in, that's the horrific time. That's when the tears don't stop flowing. That's when it's hard to get out of bed. That's when it's hard to leave the house. And that's that's a really hard time. And I have to say, like, a year especially is horrible you know this is the first time in uh 22 years I haven't hung my daughter's stocking Mm. it's the first time in 22 years Santa hasn't visited her it's the first time that we haven't had her home on Christmas day with us and so they're they're horrible things to have to deal with and and what's complicates it more is I have a a nine-year-old son and then I also have her two-year-old that I am very conscious of that that they've already experienced something so traumatic at such a young age that even as an adult I'm struggling with how it's even harder for them. So I have to make sure that at all of these special occasions where I'd like to go into the room and put the pillow over my head and come out a week later that I don't, that I get up and I create good memories because I don't want them to look back on their childhood and all they remember is trauma and sadness. I'm actively working really, really hard every day that they look back and even though they know something horrific happened, it's scattered with beautiful memories mm. and, and and times of happiness and feeling love and safety. So every day that's what I have to get up and make the mission, even though there's days where I'm crying in the shower and then I come out and I wipe my tears away and smile for them because that's what I have to do because I, I have two other people that I'm responsible for and I have to make sure that as much as this has impacted their life that it doesn't put them on the wrong path. 
I think that's <clears throat> incredibly brave. And I think, um, you know, I just, I think that you, and I don't know why I just keep getting this, like this phrase of like an image of like you carrying a torch, but I think, um, what you've experienced is something that, uh, is a nightmare and to be able to, um, continue to go on and, and raise like two children, raise her, her child, I think is, um, I, you know, I, I cannot, um, understand in the realms of what you do and I won't even pretend to, but, um, within grief and within having to continue to be okay when you're, you're not okay. Um, because like you said, like, um, you know, often with my son, like I, I feel like, you know, responsible for creating, like you said, like beautiful memories and for him to have a beautiful childhood. But I know that there will come a point where I'm going to have to tell him, you know, when he's much older, like what his dad did. And, um, that's really scary for me. Um, but I think like, just for you, I think it's, um, it's courageous and it's brave. And I think there are going to be many people who are going to want to continue to learn from you. I really do. Um, and I think that in a sense, you're, you're really a lifesaver for this, this little boy. Um, because if, if he, you know, there's moms who, who die and then these children go into the foster care system and then their lives are just truly from the get-go, um, spiral downhill. And I think have you, I mean, you're, you are setting the pace and you are able to nurture and, and cultivate a, a home, a safe space for him. And, um, you know, that's, it's incredible. I know that it's, it's, I can't imagine how hard it is and how, um, difficult it is. And on some days you may be fine. And other days you're like, I'm not fine, but I have to be, you know, because I have these children to, to raise, um, but I think there will become a point where even though you'll have to explain and there will be questions, I think the fact that you have scattered the beautiful memories around childhood, I think, and, and as they grow up, I think there there's going to be a tremendous amount of gratitude for that because there are lots of, you know, if it weren't for you um, with this a level and amount of trauma, I really, I mean, I don't know what, what would happen. Um, I think that. A lot of people say to me, like, oh, I don't think I could be this strong. But you don't realise how strong you can be unless you have no other choice. Mm. You just, you just, you can do it. But I, I'm very lucky as well. Um, my grandparents are amazing um, people. But when I was uh, younger, um, my uncle was dying when I was five years old. And my grandmother had breast cancer and they were in two separate hospitals. And then at the same time, my mother was suffering from mental health issues. So she had quite bad depression. So my grandfather had me living with him at five years old, his wife in hospital with breast cancer, one of his sons dying in another hospital. That's a, that's a lot to take on. And at the time, I had no idea any of it was happening. My grandfather made so many happy memories for me during that time um, that I remember visiting my uncle every day in the hospital, playing, you know, painting his nails, just really having fun, to be honest, um, that it wasn't until I was an adult that I actually put everything together, what was happening, mm. because I actually remember the time extremely fondly, which is, is really weird to say, but my grandfather worked so hard at making sure 
he created fun in moments of grief, that I look back at that time as a really loving and nurturing time and not, you know, obviously he was experiencing extreme trauma. My grandmother was fine. She um, received treatment and, and she's still going today. Um, but I think he gave me an amazing example of that you can find moments of light even in the worst moments mm-hmm. and, unfor- and and happiness and grief can coexist. Wow. And so he taught me that, you know, I didn't realise what he was teaching me. It's only as an adult when I looked back and realised, um, I said to my grandmother years ago as an adult though, Uncle Paul was dying when I was going to the hospital every day. And she said, yes. And I said, I didn't know. Like I didn't figure that out until I was an adult. I just remember having so much fun when I was there. And then she said to me, well, he loved you visiting every day because you didn't realise what was happening and you just played and said, let me paint your nails, let me do this. Um, And so, you know, he taught, my grandfather taught me from a very young age that, that grief and happiness can coexist and that we must create happy memories even in the depths of despair. Wow. That's phenomenal. That's just uh, like moves me and is just, um, I think, so beautiful. And I think something that a lot of people like even listening are going to be able to carry and pick up because I think a lot of people who are listening to this are grieving and trying to find answers and they end up resonating with different pieces of stories. And, then you know, they're able to kind of their story. Um, And I think even for me, I mean, that it's incredible, like just to hear, hear you say that and just to see that um, pattern throughout, like even like your childhood and the way that that kind of circled back around, it really is a full circle moment. Um, and so I think that's, that's incredible. And I think, um, you know, victims that are out there that I think there's a real fear of, for some victims, and I, I know this exists of, I've got this failed relationship and I didn't make it work. If you walk away from something like this, you didn't fail anybody, you know, and I know it takes a lot of strength to get up and leave um, because it's not easy. You know, there's financial reasons. There's um, this person's broken you and now you're trying to leave as a broken person. That is so hard. So any steps that you're taking towards leaving or if you have left, be really, really proud of yourself. That takes so much strength. And instead of looking at like you failed something, look at it and be proud of yourself. Take a moment from that to be so proud of what you're doing and push away the shame because victims have no shame. The only person that should feel shame is the perpetrator. And that's the only place that shame should sit. There is no shame for victims because you did nothing wrong. Tabitha, thank you so much for um, coming on and speaking. And I know this episode is a little messy, like, because I just, I'm like, I don't know, like, I've never done an episode like this before, um, but I'm just really grateful for you just like sharing a piece of this story with us. And, um, 
I came across your page and I didn't really understand at first, like what, what it was until we had spoken. You were like, explain that it was your daughter's life who was taken. And, um, you just give a perspective that I, I have not yet been able to speak to a mother. Um, and so I'm really grateful for that. And I know that every episode is always incredible. Like how, um, when the season ends, um, sometimes there'll be like, uh, steady like silence and I'm like all right and like I can see the numbers but like are you guys listening um and then all of a sudden I think people catch up through episodes and then I'll get like just tons and tons of texts and messages from people saying like or people who found an episode and like it relates and resonates so deeply with them and they are just given so much healing or people girls have left, um, their abusive relationships or even husbands who've put themselves in counseling and are like in therapy now. And so I, I'm eager to see like how this episode carries out because I know that the right people who need to find this episode will find it, whether it's a mother who's grieving a lost child or, uh, somebody who hears this and and thinks this could be me, this could be me and it wakes them up. I don't know what it is, but, um, I know I've just from this have learned so much. And so I'm extremely grateful that you took time, um, during the holidays to come and like, uh, just speak to me and, and share a bit of the story and anything like I'll put, um, I'll tag you. Um, and then if you want to like provide any resources, I don't know, like you said, you're going to start a podcast soon. So I'd yeah. love to do any type of promotion for you, like and share it that way others can, um, cause a lot of people within the domestic violence community do follow this. Um, and then, you know, they can listen to that as well. I'm sure. Cause it's, I've, I mean, I've learned so much from you in the last hour, so I'm going to be listening to it as well, but no, and I, I thank you as well as a survivor who is putting themselves out there to really keep reliving the trauma every time you um, record an episode and, again, fight for women in, in the situation that you're in. So I thank you for your bravery and, and, you know, for letting me share my daughter's story because she was really loved and she's really, she's really, really missed. Yeah. And her story, like... <clears throat> has a place here and it's not um you know like I said people are going to come across this episode and I do believe that like um you know she she has a place here on this podcast and um it's not going to go anywhere and and people are going to come across her story and I do believe like it's going to help others and I think you coming forward and being willing to relive trauma. Um, it's, it's something that impacts others and changes the course of other people's lives. Um, and so thank you for being like being willing to come on and, and to talk to me and to share this. I genuinely, I'm just so grateful. No, I thank you. And, um, you know, if you're out there and, and you need help, seek it because there's people that want to give it and we, and we want to keep you safe. All right, guys. Um, tune in next week for the next episode. If this episode, um, you know, if any of these episodes have impacted you, um, feel free to um, leave a review on Apple podcast or um, you can review on both Spotify and Apple podcast. Um, each person that comes across this podcast and is able to read reviews of how it's helped them or what they've learned, it does help them to know that this is a safe space for them.